Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Here's the mistake we all make typically when we look at creativity. We begin with the output. So if it, it, it might be a, a, an incredible painting, it could be a fantastic piece of technology. It could be a way in which we, we run a business or advise clients or whatever it is. We tend to look at that output and say, oh my gosh, what a brilliant idea she had to come up with that. Um, isn't she creative? How do we do that? And the thing is, is that none of us want to do that. Nobody wants to reinvent the iPhone. No, nobody wants to reinvent Uber. We certainly appreciate the value that, that such things have created for us, and we'd like to create something that ha cre also creates value and has a significant impact, but we don't want to recreate the same thing. And if any of us are honest with ourselves, we'll, we'll acknowledge that that is true. So the difference is when you start to look at creativity from the front end. What is it that leads certain people to have more creative ideas or what appear to be more creative ideas than the rest of us? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Larry, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh my gosh! It's uh, taking the time. I've been waiting for a time like this. I, I love the way you guys talk with people, and I love what you share with your audience. So I'm happy to be a part of that. Yeah. So you know, I was introduced to you by way of uh, Jeffrey Shaw, and he told me a little bit about what you did. And I, I remember when your book showed up, I was like, "Wow!" A book titled "The Language of Creativity" that's three or four hundred pages. I thought, okay, there's got to be a lot of stuff here um, that is just really rich and, and interesting and riveting. And, and I was really blown away by the book. But before we get there. Um, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living, and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Hmm. So this is interesting. It, in my family, at least, it wasn't just what my parents did. So, for example, my my dad is an attorney, and he he specializes in the area of gas and water, and and to, to some extent, uh, electricity. He also does that in the American Southwest, which, as you might imagine, it isn't just straightforward law. And, it, and it's, it's very creative in its own right, just, not just how you see the law, but how you understand its applications to the people involved and the place involved and the time. Because he will sometimes work on a, on a similar issue at different points in time over a decade, and the views have flipped so what I remember as, as a kid growing up with, with my dad was how interested he was in his work, how important it was to him, but how important it was to the people that he represented and, frankly, to the people that he opposed in a legal case. All of those things he had this deep respect for. 
my mom started out as a teacher, but really became this very innovative, um, how should I say this? She wasn't a teacher. She opened the door to learning opportunities for both kids and adults. So as an, as a, as an example of that, she worked with kids that had learning disadvantages. They used to call it learning disabilities, and it broadened into different kinds of learning disadvantages. And one of the things she realized was their biggest disadvantage was being treated as though they had a disadvantage. She discovered this, this is going to set the date uh, on the clock back a little bit. She came across this interactive software using some of the first touchscreen computers. So we're talking way, way before our, our uh, smartphones that we touch the screen on every second now. And what she did is she brought it into a classroom to help her students. These were you know, somewhere in the middle school to early high school age to learn more proficiently how to read and write. But what she did first was she transformed the classroom into an office space. She went to local people. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and she went to local businesses and said, hey, I need you to donate carpet. Uh, she went to, to me and my brother and said, I need you to take the chalkboards, they were chalkboards at the time, off the wall. I need you to paint the room. I need to make this look like the kind of place that kids can aspire to. And as you might not be surprised, it really transformed the entire learning environment. And when she wasn't doing that for kids during the day, she was doing that for illiterate adults at night, helping them to, to read and write. So, it, you know, if were I to say my parents were a lawyer and a teacher, it would really water down what they showed me in the way they did their work and why it mattered to them and the people around them. But as I said, it was more than my parents. I had that influence from my grandparents, too, on, on both sides of my family. And the stories that we would hear about my grandparents and the various things that they did also influenced how our household operated, how my brother and I learned what was important in life and learned our own style of how to do it. And, and using the example of my uh, father and the example of my mother, I think you can uh, tell that one of the most important lessons was you got to find your own way. Don't be us, be you. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm curious how we find that uh, sense of appreciation, you know, fulfillment and all these things we're looking in our own work. Like, is there something that you can do to actually engineer that? To engineer this sense of satisfaction and, and depth and appreciation that your parents seem to have for their work. Um, and you know, it, it, this is something I notice. I think with a lot of people that I've interviewed is they have this in their lives. It's, it's this sort of sense of I'd be doing this if you, even if nobody was paying attention. Um, and I, I'm curious how you find that in your working environment or your job or your vocation. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I wish I could tell you sort of wish I could tell you that there was some straight path to that. But you and I know that's not true. And any listeners to your podcasts know that's not true. I've, I've listened to many, many of your podcasts. And I'll tell you what I find an interesting pattern related to your question is how they talk about how they've evolved from uh, one type of work to the next or how they've evolved from one idea to the next. So 
in my mind, it's that ongoing engagement. It's it's putting yourself out there at what I refer to as your edges, and at the very least, peering over, but really getting in the practice of, of putting your toe over, border crossing a bit beyond your edges. And sometimes you find something that really drives you, and sometimes you don't. And when you find that something that doesn't drive you, I think it turns you towards the kinds of things that do. So it's that constant play that I think leads you to be passionate about your work. If you found passion in, in the first thing you did and you stuck with that and you never went to your edges again, I think that passion would wane over time. So it's that constant playing at the edges in my mind that that really allows that kind of passion. And you know, to point to my my mother's story, she'd been a teacher for 15 years before she transformed that classroom. But she even transformed the tools she used individually with students, how she interacted with other teachers all the way up to that 15 years. She was in the practice of doing that before she had what we might call that big idea of turning a classroom into a more office-like space. Hmm, interesting. I mean, it sounds to me like lifelong curiosity is really kind of essential to our best ideas and our most innovative ideas. There's no question. There's no question. And, and if you think about it, think about any of us as a kid, if we can remember that far back, or any kid you've observed, they're born that way. We are all born with this side of us that wants to think about what we don't know, what what could be in the future, what just could be, what's possible. And you watch kids and they are exploring in that fashion. Even more interesting is they're not turned back by the shock they get when they they put their finger in the socket (laughs) or the shock they get back when their parents say, no, 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 no. They continue to push forward in some way. And that really, if you look at the research, that continues up until the time we go to kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And then we are taught to feed that other side of our brain. And I refer to these these sides of how we think as the fox and the hedgehog. So the fox is that curious side that constantly wants to explore the edges. The hedgehog is the, the part of our brain, equally important, by the way, that says, okay, that's great what you found, but we've got to do something with that. But if you think about the way we're taught whether that's in school or when we get a job and we're taught how to do that job, the incentives we're given to continue to do it that way, it's very hedgehog, orderly, do it the same way orientation. So it's not that the creative side goes away. It's just that, um, as, as one of your guests recently, Gay Hendricks, said, it's, you know, he was talking about, about genius, and he was saying, look, there's a discipline to this. It's working the muscle. And creativity and curiosity, they're a muscle. You have to play with them or they atrophy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to talk about that in quite a bit more detail. But um, you know, I, I'm really glad you brought up uh, the education piece because I was going to ask you, you know, having been raised by a teacher who transformed an educational environment, uh, and somebody who, who spends a lot of time thinking about creativity, um, what do you think the role of creativity is in our education system today, and what's the impact of it going to be on the future of work? It's such an important question. I will say to you that my belief is we all need to <clears throat> excuse me, begin to bend more and bend heavily towards that natural creative capacity we all have. And there probably isn't a place that we spend more time in and that should be uh, best equipped for playing with it than our formal education when, when we're in schools. 
The problem is, is that that is not the way the overwhelming majority of schools and curriculum and uh, grading systems are built. They're built on an old system that goes back to our industrial roots in the mid to late 1800s, in both in Europe and here. And uh, around the same time, we began our obsession with IQ and whether or not we could identify intelligence, identify genius, put a quotient to it and track it. And what happened is education started to, to modify uh, its form to try to fit that same pattern. So we are a long way down a path of learning how to do things in a very orderly way. And unfortunately, we keep moving further and further towards the absence of the kind of play, uh, of the kind of things we, you know, we've we've loosely called the arts. Uh, we're, we're seeing those disappear from schools. So that ability to play with your creativity in school is a really... Um, really tough thing to come by. It's, it's, it's a really limited commodity. And yet, I, I'll point back to your question. I think it's absolutely important. So how do you change that? I'm not sure I have the answer for how you change it in a systemic way. But I do know that we all have the power to change that at an individual level. And so that's really where I focus a lot of my time, including when I'm consulting educational institutions. Mm. So I want to get into your work, but I, I would really like to hear uh, about the story of how you've arrived at doing this work. You know, uh, like walk me through the trajectory of your career. <laughs> yeah. So I was I was listening to one of your most recent podcasts the other day, Tamsin Webster, and and she was talking about this. She's the only other person. Uh, I know that uses this term that I use all the time. She was talking about through lines uh -huh. and where does the story come from in what you do? And it's really interesting because the through line looking backward on my career, which I'm about to tell you, I think is a lot more um, thought through, refined, <laughs> maybe turned into a through, through line than it ever was on the front end. Uh -huh. So I, I started down this interesting path coming out of college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I actually began my time, uh, my undergrad work as a uh, graphic arts major. And I ended up as an economics major with an art history minor. So it, it tells you that I was doing a lot of um, exploring and, and quilting together of different, different things that I was interested in. But that didn't lead me to say, oh, I know I want to do this. So, of course, I ended up on Wall Street. <laughs> really, what I did is I followed recruiters that came to my school. I followed friends that went there. And I thought, what the heck? I'd never, never been to New York. This could be interesting. Turns out it was not my kind of space. And it was a place that um, I certainly enjoyed being there, but I always felt like a visitor. And I felt very away from my homeland. I didn't have time to surf. There were It was not easy to get to green space. I didn't have time in my day to actually walk outside and breathe things that I not only love to do, I need to do. So I found myself pretty quickly within about a year and a half back on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I took a job with uh, what was one of the few venture capital firms out there at the time. They also spent a lot of time with companies before they even talked about investing in them. And what we would do is, is we'd go find these companies that we thought had interesting ideas, interesting stories, and a lot of potential. 
and we would offer to learn about them. We would offer to give them our insights about what it would take to to grow a company, to get their idea to appeal to others. And I absolutely loved that. Because basically, I I was out talking with people about what their passion was and getting into it in my own passionate way with no concern on either side of where's the money coming from and where will it go. Because if the work evolved to the point that we were trusting each other as thought partners, who else were they going to turn to for their their financing needs? They were going to turn to people they trust. And if they didn't, we didn't want them as clients anyway because that trust was the key to everything we could do. It was our unique offering. There were other people who could offer them money. What we offered them was a true interest in what they were doing, uh, a shared passion, and, and that belief that they could trust us. So I took that, that experience and... And I went back to business school, and after business school, I ended up at the Walt Disney Company hoping that I was going to get to play in the same sandbox or the same kind of sandbox that I had when I was doing that venture capital work. It was the second time that I'd run into big organizations don't think that way, even places that appear on the outside as, as creative and innovative as the Walt Disney Company always had to me. So, um, you know, if you're following this track here, I, I moved to yet the next thing, which was to shift back to the East Coast and to help a group of guys try to start a venture capital firm, one which never got off the ground. And that led me, first on a whim, to start to consult to people project by project about how do you grow your idea? How do you grow your company? How do you deal with the pains of growth? And lo and behold, within a year, I was sitting in a formal interview and, and telling somebody about what I was doing. And the, they, I kid you not, Srini, they kicked back in their chair. They put their feet up on the desk. They put their hands behind their head and started smiling. And I stopped my performance trying to get this job and said, What's so funny? And they said, I have no idea why you're here. You already have the greatest job in the world. Hmm. And that's how my business Lighthouse Consulting started in, in a formal way. And that was way, way back in 1992. So really my path since then within Lighthouse has been to lean towards those things that, that made the work fun, that made me want to be there and therefore made me more valuable to my clients or to lean away from it when it wasn't feeling that way, which, by the way, is exactly how my two books came about. I leaned away from what my uh, prim- primary business side was in order to explore some things that just felt to me more important, even though I didn't know exactly where they were going to go. Oh, wow. So, you know, one of the, the things that um, came up for me as, as you were talking about that was this notion of prestige. And it takes me back to something you did, you know, you said, uh, before we hit record, when I was asking you about MacArthur fellows, uh, I mean, I'm curious why prestige and titles and accolades are so disillusioning, even though when we don't have them, we think they're going to be the solution to all our problems. Like, you know, I mean, I, I remember thinking if I got into a top 10 business school, my life would be set. And of course, I didn't get into any of those. And, you know, the sort of buzz that you get from these external accolades wears off. And I, I'm curious why we want this thing so bad. And yet we're so disillusioned when we get it. Yeah, I'm sure that breaks down to a combination of factors for each individual. But what's interesting is in my first book, A Deliberate Pause, I formally interviewed uh, 220 people who who lived in and around entrepreneurship. And the conclusion I drew from the patterns across those conversations was that 
the desire to have those things is initially externally driven. So we're, we're kind of coached, told, given incentive to go after those titles in everything we do. And, and frankly, if you've spent, you know, at least 12 years of your life in, in first through, through 12th grade and then, you know, years after that in, in college, uh, you, if you spent all this time angling for the grade – and angling for the grade point average and angling for the graduation with distinction or whatever it might be, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a flavor that you're used to, to continue to aspire to that, that title or that market share or whatever it might be. What was interesting in, with all the people I interviewed for the, the first book was that whenever they reached that point of achieving that fill-in-the-blank uh, accolade, the, the one that everybody else recognized, the reaction was always, this is it? And so it was as though the, the first striving, even though they thought it was for success or something more than that, was really for that, that label, that recognized thing that, that you could say to others and they'd know that you had made it in some way, when they actually accomplished that, there was this lack of satisfaction. There was this lack of significance. There was this feeling of a lack of impact and really um, just almost to the person. That's when things really broke open for the people I interviewed about what was important to them and, and, and how they not only could get it, but how they could share it and instill that opportunity in others. And that really became their main motivation. But virtually all of them had to go through that first phase of striving for something that everybody else said was important. Mm, wow. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Um, well, let's do this. Uh, let's talk specifically uh, about how all of this applies in the context of creativity, because I mean, with a book titled, you know, learning to speak creativity, I think, you know, what I'd like to do is spend the rest of our time looking at the framework that you've developed through this book and kind of talking about, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, you talked about practice and play and, and I'm curious how that all comes about and what really leads, what is it ultimately that leads to great creative work? Mm. Well, if I was to simplify it to one word, I'd say habits. Yeah. And, you know, that sounds like such an easy throwaway. But here's the mistake we all make typically when we look at creativity. We begin with the output. So if it it, it might be an incredible painting, it could be a fantastic piece of technology. It could be a way in which we, we run a business or advise clients or whatever it is. We tend to look at that output and say, oh my gosh, what a brilliant idea she had to come up with that. Um, isn't she creative? How do we do that? And the thing is, is that none of us want to do that. Nobody wants to reinvent the iPhone. No, nobody wants to reinvent Uber. We certainly appreciate the value that, that such things have created for us, and we'd like to create something that ha- cre- also creates value and has a significant impact, but we don't want to recreate the same thing. And if any of us are honest with ourselves, we'll, we'll acknowledge that that is true. So the difference is when you start to look at creativity from the front end. What is it that leads certain people to have more creative ideas or what appear to be more creative ideas than the rest of us? What is it that encourages those people or gives them the sense of self to push through when they throw that idea out there at at the beginning and everybody rejects it? Or they fight against it because they know that idea is going to change the world and the way that, that we do things. And, and you know, it's not everybody likes change. So when we start to look on that front end, what we see are these patterns and these habits. In fact, I use the expression in the book that, that creative ideas 
happen in the breakthrough space. And it turns out that this, the breakthrough space is not a space you go to. It's not like it exists somewhere. You can create it anywhere, anytime. And you create it through habits like taking notice. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, we all walk through our lives every single day and, and notice things, but we also do a lot of normalizing. When something looks a little bit out of step with what we expect, or even looks a little bit interesting, it's very easy to just move on and get on with our day because we're all so busy. But when we consciously stop and take notice, and I don't mean, you know, bring your feet to a halt, but in our minds, take notice of something, even if we just play with the ideas, we continue to go along with our day, we can't help but see different things. And related to that noticing is pausing, pausing long enough to, to tune into what I think of as your sense of fit. Uh, this is something that all of us have. And it's that feeling when we notice something different that it doesn't quite fit with what we expect. And that can be in a good way or a bad way. It can be an indicator of something challenging coming our way or something opportunistic coming our way. But if you just normalize over that, you don't pause long enough to tune into your sense of fit, it's really hard to notice something different or ever have a different idea. And all of these are related to a third habit, and I'll, and I'll stop with that, and that is this willingness to be open in every sense with with the way we look at things, the way we think about things, and the way we do things. If you go back and you look at the, the research and the history and the writings on creativity over centuries, there are very few things that people universally agree on are components of creativity. But the key one is openness, openness in every sense. It's, again, what we referred to earlier, rather than being penned in by your borders and your edges, being willing to explore them and explore beyond them. And so really, all three of those things, noticing, pausing, and openness, are just habits. Mm -hmm. But the more of it you do, the more you find yourself considering new ideas and new possibilities and becoming creative. So I want to talk about the pausing piece. Uh, because that in particular really caught my attention, especially because I'm, I'm writing a book about creative habits. And, and one of the things that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about is the importance of doing nothing and, and downtime and how little of it we have, um, yeah. even though we're actually doing nothing. But we, you know, we do things like, you know, fiddle with our phones or get on Facebook or, or do all this stuff that, you know, it keeps you feeling productive, even though it's not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, one, what is the role of all of that in our creativity? And, and you know, what impact does, you know, what you call a deliberate pause have on mm -hmm. our ideas? So um, the title for the first book is a deliberate pause. And it came about because all those people that I, I interviewed, plus many I had observed for almost 20 years at that point around entrepreneurship, that's what they were doing. They were taking deliberate pauses in their own way. But let's, let's start with why this is problematic. This isn't news. We hear about people pausing, people finding quiet space, people going on thought walks, all these things that, that productive, innovative people seem to do um, have some kind of pause component to it. And our, our initial reaction to that is, ha, well, I just don't have to, the time to pause. Maybe they do, but I don't have the time to pause. But you do. And it's, it's like creativity. The pausing accumulates. The pausing builds to something bigger uh, that has more impact. And I'll give you a very simple example of that. So 
for the first book, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Richard Tate. And Richard had been with Microsoft for over 10 years. And his primary job was starting new businesses for Microsoft. And he was very, very good at it. One of the businesses he founded was Expedia. When I talked to Richard, he had left Microsoft and he had found a, uh, founded a company that I, I think many of us will register the name called Cranium. Mm-hmm. And Cranium br- literally brought back the board game market. And you might remember that in their early years, you didn't find their games at a toy store or online. You found them at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So he not only built the Cranium business, he revived the board game business around existing board games, and eventually they were purchased by Hasbro for almost $70 million. Wonderful success story. And I said to to Richard, so, you know, how did ideas like Cranium come about? And he said, well, it's all about how you walk to lunch. And Richard then proceeded to tell me that every day he got himself out of his office to go to lunch. It could be to pick it up and bring it back, but he left his workspace to go to lunch. And no matter what he did, he always did two things when he went to lunch. One was he always walked a different direction. So if he had walked around the block to the deli uh, going to his left one day, he went to his right. Or he might walk the same straight line but go around a tree in a different way. Some little out-of-step move so that he physically was changing his pattern he felt was really important to him. And the second thing he would do is that he would always talk to somebody when he was on, on that route to lunch or on that route back. So what I mean by that is it might be somebody that he knew, but he would talk to them about something that they hadn't talked about before or in a different way. Sometimes something wacky, sometimes just something that you know was never verbalized. Or he would talk to a complete stranger. So he might be standing in line at that deli, and the woman in front of him says, wow, have you ever seen a line like we have today? And typically, most of us would say, yeah, and that would be the end of the conversation. Richard would engage and strike up a conversation. Both of those things, changing his direction, and talking to somebody are forms of pauses. Mm -hmm. They can take as little as two seconds or as long as two hours. And I'm sure he adjusted them into his pattern and into his schedule on any particular day. The fact of the matter was he was in the habit of making that pause. Why? Because he knew every time he returned to, uh, we'll artificially put this around cranium, the borders of cranium, he was going to see things differently. So if they were working on the toughest challenge they'd had for for weeks or months, he was going to come back with some different frame of mind around it. If they were working on the most exciting thing, he was going to see either an opportunity to make it that much better or to avoid the disaster that could undo it. Not in any one moment, not in any one day, but out of the pattern of doing that every day, making those little pauses. So that was Richard's version of a pause. He didn't even interrupt a a routine. He still went to lunch, Mm -hmm. but he did it just a little bit differently with a little bit of a pause, both on direction and who he interacted with. Any of us can find our own way to do that. What, um, I mean, you know, from your own research, what is the role of technology and, and distraction and sources of, di- source of distraction on all of this? Something I'm, I'm personally very curious about. 
Yeah, and the and the role in in what sense? In the supporting sense of I guess of both in, in supporting or? sense and also in the hindrance sense. You know, like I know that in a lot of ways it's incredibly supporting because so much of what I do wouldn't be possible without the technology. You know, I I think I said it in 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 my my upcoming book that the very paradox of this is that the very thing that facilitates all this creativity is also the thing that inhibits it on a regular basis. Sure, sure. Well, and and think about it. So I I. I lose count sometimes, but I think you're over 700 people that you've interviewed <laughs> that would be really, really difficult to engage and interact with in the in the very real way that you do if we couldn't call each other up on Skype. Mm-hmm. It, it would be really difficult to share those incredible conversations, which, by the way, lead to more people wanting to to talk with you and more people wanting to listen if you couldn't post them as podcasts. So in that sense, the technology can be really powerful. In that sense, the technology can actually lever up your ability to do what you would otherwise do in a either a more challenging way or a slower way or, or a way with that less reach. But that's technology in context, isn't it? We're mm-hmm. using technology as a tool then. And we're checking in with technology to say, what works better for us? Meaning, I, I remember, I can't even remember how long ago it was for you guys, you completely revamped your website. Mm-hmm. Well, you were using a website, which is an incredible tool, but you were also tuned into what was what it was doing well for you and what it was not doing so well. So when technology is in that position, I think it's not only incredibly valuable, I, I think it's something that you can't live without. When you forget those check-ins about whether or not technology is working for you versus you're working for it, I think that's when it becomes problematic. So to me, it's kind of foolhardy to take any particular technology and say, you know, uh, not to pick on Facebook, but wow, look (laughs) at all the time people are wasting on Facebook. Are they? I, I don't know whether they are or not. I, you know, I'm on Facebook, but I don't, I just check in. Yeah. with Facebook. I'm I'm looking more than I'm adding and I'm checking in for very specific things. So I spend minutes a day if, even if I some days I just, you know, I'm not looking at it at all because I've learned that that is the best way to use that tool for the larger thing that I'm after and I think that's really the difference maker when it comes to technology. Mm. Wow. You know, one of the, the other things you brought up uh, in habits is that this notion of persistence. And, you know, I talked to Stephen Kotler about sort of the, the very early fail points for creatives. And, and you know, one of them is, is he, he said poverty is, is a fail point because, you know, people can't stomach the lack of, of money or not getting paid for your work, which is, is often a big part of creative work. But what I'm more curious about is one, you know, how do you develop the the persistence to do these difficult things when, you know, you don't seem like no, no external measure seems to indicate that you're experiencing any degree of success. And also the other question that that comes from is, is you know, what role does mental health play in all this? Mm, yeah, boy, there's actually a lot in, in what you just referenced and, and what you just asked. So, let me touch on a few pieces, and if if you want to dig into some others, just push me back to to the question here. But um, let let's start with the whole idea of getting started. You know, being being willing to do the first time, and then we'll go on to being willing to be persistent and stick with it. Yeah, I referenced this this phrase coming to your edges before, coming to the edges of what you know, what you do, how you do it, and and so on. 
And one of the biggest reasons people don't start things, whether they're creative endeavors or they're something else, is because they anticipate that coming to the edges of what they know and trying something new is going to be like a cliff, that there's going to be this big step off into the unknown when you come to your edge and you cross over it. And the reality is, is most edges are, are closer to curbs. So it doesn't mean there's not a shift. It doesn't mean you're not going to encounter something um, challenging or even unpleasant when you get there, but it's usually not as big a deal as you think. And so I think one of the most important things that that begins to drive us forward is, is if we have this willingness to come to our edges. What, what allows it, us to continue to return to it? Um, let me let me reference another term here and a story from one of the MacArthur fellows I interviewed, Stu Kaufman. When you come to your edges and you step over or you peer over, you are entering what Stu calls the adjacent possible. When we think of creative ideas, when we think of people who've done amazing things because they had that that resilience and that tenacity to stick with something or to come up with a great idea, we tend to think that they got there in some kind of a moon leap that they went from wherever they were before to something incredibly powerful or valuable or whatever it is, and nothing could be further from the truth. The big ideas we look back at in hindsight are really an accumulation of smaller moves, smaller ideas, some ideas that are thrown out, some ideas that are modified, new ones that come in and, and how they're quilted together. And what Stu says is if you're willing to come to your edges and you're willing to go across, you're stepping into this adjacent possible where three powerful things happen. The first is anytime you step across your borders, you can't help but see something new. Is it going to be earth shattering? I don't know. Nobody can know that. But it's definitely going to be new and it's going to shape your thinking. It's also going to shape what motivates you. The second powerful thing that happens in the adjacent possible is when you come back inside your edges, you can't help but look at things in a different way. And the third powerful thing that happens is when you are in the habit of doing that, of coming to your edges and at the very least peering over, you actually expand the possible far beyond what lay within your borders and what existed beyond them because you're seeing everything in a totally new way. So you've actually created possibility that no one else has seen before. When you get in the habit of doing that, it's a little bit addictive, it doesn't mean that you get so good at it that you never make a wrong uh, choice or end up with a, a result that's that's less than favorable. It also doesn't mean that when you see something really wonderful, it's going to come to fruition and turn into something valuable. But getting in the habit of that is addictive. And why is it addictive? Because it feeds our fox, that side of us that wants to to think about and wants to explore what's possible. So I think of you know those those people who we we look at again from the outside or, or kind of in hindsight, and they have the gumption to do the kinds of things we want to do, or they have the tenacity to stick with it. And when I look at them and think about why they seem different than we are, it's just a matter of understanding the their edges, the willingness to come to them on their own, knowing that it's more of a curb than a cliff, and being willing to continue to play with it. I think that's the thing that keeps them going. Hmm. Wow. You know, I never thought of it as addictive before, but you're right. I think if somebody told me I had to stop writing when I woke up in the morning, I would lose my mind. Yeah. That would be real. Like, I would have withdrawal symptoms. 
Well, I'll give you another one from your from your world, and I know that the vast majority of your listeners know this. Think it's just like surfing. Uh-huh. You have no idea what you're going to encounter every day. In fact, in, in your, your first book, that's exactly what you said. Every day at the ocean is basically a new day at the ocean. You're not going to get the same wave. You're not going to get the same wind. You're not going to get the same Srini because all of those things are going to come together in a, in a, in a new way. Sometimes you end up flat on your face. Mm-hmm. Other times you feel a little bit like, although no moment on the ocean is wasted time in my mind, you <laughs> feel a little bit like you're wasting your time when you don't really get any choice waves that day. Mm-hmm. So really, you're coming to your edges every time you step off that sand and into the water because you don't know what you're going to get. But when you're in the habit of playing with that, you don't even care if you get shit. Yeah. You know it's going to convert into something larger, either in that moment, probably, but definitely over the whole week of going to the ocean or the whole year or a whole lifetime of doing that. Mm. Wow. So the other part of my question was about, you know, the role of mental health um, in all of this, because... You know, like I keep seeing, you know, so much information about where we're at with our mental health issues, and and you know, like I, I can, I mean, we have you know Amy Blanks and a happiness researcher here, and it just seems to me that your mental well-being and your ability to you know be creative are, are very interlinked. I think they absolutely are. So. I referred to the fact that each of us, from an evolutionary standpoint, were built with these two mindsets. Uh, one is the fox and one of the, is the hedgehog. The reason I refer to them that way is there's a single surviving line from a, an ancient Greek poem that says, the fox knows many things and the hedgehog knows just one big thing. And what it really refers to in my mind, this you know nice, simple little metaphoric shorthand, is that the, the hedgehog that knows the one big thing, that's our order side. That's, that's our early evolutionary brain, the thing that, that got us fed, uh, found us shelter, found us uh, even companionship every day so we'd be around to survive the next day. That part of our brain has been there the longest. But there's another part of our brain that developed as we uh, stood up on two legs, as our brain got bigger in general, that had this capacity – to think about things that didn't exist. Some of the researchers call this the ability to shift between now and then thinking. So the now is, I, I, I got to take care of this right now. That's the order side. The then is, well, I'm going to think a little more openly. What, what's, what's possible here? So um, really, I think when it comes to mental health, if we are not allowing both of our mindsets and our full brain to engage in some way, then we're doing a detriment to our mental health overall. So what's the right balance? I don't know. That's a highly individual thing. But to not play with that fox side of our brain and to not do it uh, as a habit, to be in the practice of doing it, whatever that means for each of us as an individual, is going to weigh on us in some way. I mean, you, if you look at the, the research that they've done on incentives, that I, if you're familiar with Dan Pink's book, Drive, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that research contained in the book. And what they say is all the things we think motivate people aren't the things that really motivate them, like raising their salary or, or giving them higher health benefits. They need those things. They want those things. But that's not what motivates them. It's things like mastery and purpose and feeling like you've had an impact. And in order to do that, you can't just follow orders. You can't be all hedgehog. Mm -hmm. 
You have to play with this other side that lets you feel like you have participated in creating the impact, even if the impact was a result of a whole team or a whole company. So I think that that playing with our complete brain and both mindsets is absolutely critical to our mental health. And that's something each of us can do no matter what environment we work in. There's no question that the environments we work work within can either enhance or detract from our feeling of mental health, but we've got all that power right up there in that skull of ours. Mm, Wow. So, you know, one of the things that I that I noticed as I was reading the book is the amount of references that you made to other books that you come across. So I, I had to ask you, um, you know, what are a book or, you know, what is a book or a couple of books that have profoundly influenced your life? Uh, see, this is where we need a whole podcast for this. <laughs> um, I'll tell you a, a couple that that are always on the top of my mind meaning there there are always ones that I read in any particular uh, immediate period of time that that influence me profoundly that I think about about a lot that I love to turn around and look at my bookshelf and see and yes I still read printed books there's something about the the tactile nature of it and being able to take notes in the margin and I you know I have kind of this visual memory I can remember what page a certain line was on or what page I took notes on um, but then there are some books that just Stick with me forever. So one of those uh, is by a guy named Craig Childs. He's a, a fantastic, adventurous nature writer, and the book is called *The Secret Knowledge of Water*. And the book is really about, uh, as he says in the beginning, there are two ways to die in the desert. And I grew up in the in the desert. You can die from thirst, or you can die by drowning. And it's this really interesting interplay with a place that on the surface, physical place, the desert, seems dry and absent of water, and yet how many places the water exists, and how he has found that water, how Native Americans gravitated towards that water and had these incredible civilizations around it. And there's just this lyrical way that he explores these things that we don't think about, um, that I, I, I think about a lot. Um, another book that really influenced me is uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. And it's about soldiers in war and the things that they carried on their person, the things that they carried in their mind that uh, kept them going through you know, the hell that they went through and how it sustained them. And I, to me, that was a very powerful book. And I'll give you one more. Um, there used to be this, this online magazine, and I'm um, blanking on the name of it, but they did this um, contest, I guess you could say, or experiment. There was this story about Ernest Hemingway that he was once challenged to write a novel in six words, and he said it was the best work he'd ever done. So this magazine did this online challenge to get people to write six-word novels, and they put out a book called Not Quite What I Was Planning, Six Words, that is a collection of all the submissions that they got. It was it was called Smith Magazine Online. Fantastic, because what you're seeing are both known people and unknown people in six words expressing thoughts that every one of us can relate to, and yet you know every one of them is something we probably never would have thought of ourselves. So it's like, it's almost like they're reading your own thoughts as they do it. Those would be three books that I'd highlight. Wow. Very cool. 
Well, uh, this has been really, really amazing. I mean, we could talk for probably two hours about all of this stuff. So uh, I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've, I've, I've heard you, you've heard me ask, and that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Yeah, so it's interesting. I as we as I was anticipating our call, I was I was going through your book and and I was reflect your first book and reflecting on the lack of signature. And the idea that when you're doing something unmistakable, everybody recognizes you in it. So, you know, it's funny, we were talking earlier about those labels we all go after, rather than those things we could turn to within ourselves and go after, those things that we could make into something unmistakable. And I, and I think for me, it's a combination of doing those things and then feeling that way about yourself. Hmm. that you feel you are pursuing your version of what's unmistakable and it makes you smile when you do it and it makes you proud to do it no matter what the the take is from the outside no matter what others like it's feeling that you're going after that thing when it feels shitty and when it feels great to me that's unmistakable Hmm. well i think that makes a, a really beautiful end to our conversation where can people learn more about you and your work yeah, the best place to find me is at LarryRobertson.me. It's about a three-page website, and it'll send you to anything you're interested in, from individual websites about the book to my, my Lighthouse Consulting work and a whole bunch of other stuff. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.